0: I like fish and fishtails, long ones, the type of fish tails that keep me hanging on every word, listening for the small details, and hungry for more. Most fish tales start something like this: Once upon a time, and usually end with some larger-than-life reality that we all want to live in and understand. The phrase a fish tail originated exactly from that, fish. Well, fishermen, to be more precise. And usually, they tell some version of stories about a small little fishy, which was caught, but before the story ends, it becomes Jonah's whale. You know, a story of biblical proportion. But from where and why did they actually originate? And why about fish? What is it about fish? Well, let's take a quick look at biblical Jonah's whale of a tale.
1: In the land of Israel there was a prophet named Jonah. Jonah tried to love all people and all creatures. Ah. Your fish looks fresh today, Ophir. Yes, Jonah, the freshest you will ever meet or
0: eat. You know how much I love eating fish. I see someone just as hungry as I am. Yep, Jonah's fish tale began there. Saw him hiding from God as a stowaway on a ship which got caught in a storm and then ended with him lost and at sea.
1: Jonah found himself in the whale's belly. Now he was really alone.
0: God, I'm sorry for trying
1: to hide from you. Do you hear me, God?
0: Not unlike Jonah's story, fish tales usually have a comforting moral to pass on. You know, some sort of wisdom shared, and generally we find that the most popular of them speak about sharing, generosity, trust, and faith and community. For Jonah, it boiled down to, (laughs) yep, boiled down to being a story about honor and uniting his neighbors, growing his community. Interesting how this sort of origin story still holds today. A tale of one small fishy feeding many. One small story impacting many. Like this one from WWF's Pavitri Pillay, whose Hindi grandmother shared stories with her about how one small fish curry, and a few other dishes, once fed a nation on trial. You're listening to Be There, Do That, the podcast featuring everyday stories about food, race, and social impact in Africa.
2: My grandmother fed the the Rivonia trialers, um, during the first trial. Now, everybody knows about the treason trial. But the lots of idea don't... of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an idea for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my love. If it needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared
0: to die. Now, not everyone knows about the Rivonia trial, so in case you don't, just briefly. The trial Pavatry is speaking about is the famous Rivonia trial held in South Africa in the 60s. It's often referred to as the trial that changed South Africa. In October 1963, 10 leading activists against apartheid, including Nelson Mandela, Ahmed Kathrada, and Walter Sisulu, went on trial for their lives on charges of conspiracy and sabotage against the nation.
2: But lots of people don't realize there were two trials. There was one earlier where they were actually found not guilty, and then the second one where they were sentenced to imprisonment on Robben Island. She would walk to all of the Indian merchants and she would force them, and I use that word because that's what she would do, she would force them to donate food. So she'd say, today you're giving me so many kilograms of sugar. Today you're giving me so many tea bags. And then she would take it all home and she'd cook. And she'd make two teas, one at 10, one at 3, and then uh, lunch for all of the, the, the trialists. So and the first trial was held in a synagogue, will you believe it, in Pretoria, around very close to where my family is from. And my grandmother has always been a very strong advocate for human rights. Um, she was... Her siblings were actually uh, around the time of when Mahatma Gandhi was in South Africa, and she was regarded as his adopted daughter, along with her three brothers. Wow. So my great-grandfather is CKT Tambinaidu, who started the Indian Congress movement in South Africa. Wow. So I got a long lineage, but to... You know, so she's always been very active, uh, a, very, a stalwart of note. And uh, she saw this opportunity, as first of all, as a woman, second of all, as an Indian woman. You can imagine she had so much limitations, restrictions, you know, unplaced on, on her from a cultural perspective, but also living in a South African context as an Indian because we were black, um, you know, we were squashed into the, what was called the Asiatic Bazaar, which would be the Indians' version of an informal settlement. And she found a way to actually still express
0: how strongly she felt about the injustices that was happening to people of color. Pavaji's grandmother, Ms. Tayana Yagi Pillay, not only lived her moral tale due unto others as you would have them do unto you, but as a practicing Hindi vegetarian, She also felt it was her mission to pass lessons along to poverty regarding minimizing food waste of all kind. So talk about food waste. This woman wasted
2: nothing, absolutely nothing. I mean, she would do simple things like save the water in which you boil the rice because it had so much starch. You could use it to use it as thickening in other things. Save old lettuce because you could make lettuce soup. She was just an ingenious She's a genius when it came to food waste, and this is what she would do: is how she would stretch the food that people would donate for the trees and trialists. And my poor dad was the the sucker who had to drive our way down every day carrying these these bowls and basically pots of food to the trial. And then she'd feed Nelson Mandela and all the guys. And she was so considerate. I just remember saying, you know, Walter Sisulu has high blood pressure, so he can't have a lot of salt. So this stuff we made for him. Nelson Mandela is fine, but he also likes strong food. So I put extra chilies for him. And Amit Katrada is vegetarian, so I have to make sure that he has this food. And it has... And just the story she used to revel us with his young kids. I mean, I used to be in awe of her. And I was fortunate enough to have her for a really long time. And she showed me how you don't waste, how you peel potatoes properly, how you, you know. And if you want to talk about fish, I mean, my grandmother would, she'd literally die if she saw how we purchase fish nowadays. She would want the whole thing, head to tail, because she would use the whole animal. She would waste nothing. She would make fish head soup with the head. Being a vegetarian, she knew what she was doing. Fish head soup with the head. She'd make fried fish with the tail because that's quite a bony part. And then the fillet was what she'd make fish curry with. But nowadays, you just get your fillet and you do whatever you want. You've wasted the rest of the animal. And she used to say, no, 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 are you mad? God has given you that thing to utilize. You are very lucky to get it. You will use the whole thing because A, there's not enough fish in the sea,
0: and and B, you're privileged to actually eat that animal. In consideration of God, culture, and utility, in fact, vegetarianism is prominently practiced in Hinduism. In ancient times, eating meat and fish was tolerated as long as the animal was sacrificed to the gods that sacrifice justifying the killing. Then, as the tradition of nonviolence, or ahimsa, grew within Hinduism, abstaining from meat and fish became preferred and established as a model respecting the principle of nonviolence. Only when I got older... And I started figuring out
2: what she she was doing. Did I realize she was actually mobilizing women? So she'd go and cook in the temple and she'd call the women in the community to help her. Because in in Hindu families up in Joburg, everybody gets a meal when you go for prayer. Um, You go for the prayer in the morning and then they serve like a proper lunch. You get rice and you get cabbage, all vegetarian, but you'll get cabbage and get a bit of pumpkin. But everybody gets a meal. And if there are any homeless people, we all get fed and we all get to eat together. And I used to just think she was a workaholic, and that's all. And she's just way too religious to want to go and cook for God, and you know, the usual story young people think. But as I got older and I realized what she was doing, she started engaging the women in a political dialogue where they wouldn't have had that back home because Indian women had to be reserved, and Indian women had to only worry about your family, and Indian. And all of a sudden, she took them out of that, and they were in a temple, and they were being honest, and they were serving in the name of God, but yet they were having this unbelievably intense thought-provoking conversation around the political situation.
0: I find this so interesting on so many different levels. The first that there is a sort of spiritual framework for this sense of community and sense of not wasting and sense of using all of what has been given and provided. And the next that in light of doing all of that people actually can create broader community. And that doesn't matter Absolutely. from what community they're in. This Absolutely. idea again of how food bridges these gaps and fills in these holes. Yeah. I thought a bit more about this later, considering that the humble fish fishtail could be a unifying force in between connecting the spirit, land, sea, and people. Lisa Chiat, producer and creator of Life Stories, an online lineage and memory project, helped me connect the dots this way when considering the humble gefilte fish tradition in Jewish history. Lisa? Yes? Tell me about fish. What do you know about fish? You mean
1: fish or Jewish fish? All fish. All fish. So in terms of Jewish fish, a traditional Jewish, which is called Ashkenazi cooking, which comes from my ancestral kind of geographical line, which is... Russia and Eastern Europe, as opposed to Svaradi Jewish cooking or Jewish people, which come from um, Iran, Iraq, and the, the African sort of uh, Arabic countries, if you like. So I fall into the line of grandparents who came from Lithuanian Latvia, so it's at Ashkenazi. And for that, the traditional fish, of course, is a horror to some and amazing to others, gefilte fish which in the time of the shtetl, which is the little village that you saw in Fiddler on the Roof, you know, when they had to leave Anatevka, which was the name of the shtetl, the little town, uh, they, in those environments they would make gefilte fish, which was really a very clever food that a lot of poor people, because Jews in those days in these small towns were very, very poor, they would take all the leftovers of fish and put them together. Dear Lord, You made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. Yeah, they. Uh, and initially, I think it's stockfish. It was hake initially, and I think it became quite expensive. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure the difference between stockfish and hake, but I do know that the. The way that it was made initially, if you watch the video of of Sarah, she's got the fish at home and she's skinning the fish and she's actually boiling the fish. Now I know for my mom, she'll go and she'll buy the ready-made minced fish, which is probably a different fish. And I remember them saying at home, it's become so expensive to get that initial fish. So we have that happening, sort of a modernization in a way, but still ideally made at home and
0: some people coming and buying here. To be able to keep and preserve that type of tradition in a really diverse environment, but as a very micro-community, is quite significant. So you've like passed traditions over through communities, other communities, and even within households, like in your own household. Yes. Tell me about that. Yes,
1: we have a wonderful mix in our own household. So... Um, many, many years ago, more than I would say 60 years ago, a wonderful woman called Sarah Hesselman, who um, grew up in a very, very well, in a semi-isolated community called Vipatol in the Cederberg. Amazing community of people. They're small, where they all lived till over 100 or 90s. And she came to Cape Town to, to look for work as a domestic worker. In fact, I think she was relieving someone who was working for my grandmother. She came for a weekend at the age of 19, and she's still with our family. She doesn't work, but she's part of our family, and she's in her mid-80s. And she was taught to cook Jewish food, Yiddish-Jewish food, Ashkenazi food, by my granny. Tell us what you
2: are doing, please. Now I make the fish, and the bones go first
0: in. And that's Sarah chatting with Lisa about the best gefilte fish recipe in the world.
2: Then you put your onions and your carrots in. And then you start to make your fish and your water boils. You put sideways a little bit of water, make your hands wet and make your balls and put it in. Okay. But don't forget your matzah meal, eh? You must put matzah meal in, in the filter.
1: Our Jewish community, particularly in South Africa, and speak for Cape Town, about 15,000 people, is, it's kind of relatively politically diverse, I hope, but um, traditionally quite um, bonded. And we take pleasure in that, even with, let's say, political difference. And so that's important for us. And it's important for us to carry on those traditions. And our grannies and our grandpas, our bobbas and our zaidas, were very precious to us. And so often it's not just Sarah. They were domestic workers, members of the family, who were with families for years and years, who did, of course, in any community, as would be an Italian community or elsewhere, if you're working with a family or for a family, you need to cook their food. And that often it would be the domestic worker, the Sarah, she's my other mother, so I find it hard to use that term, who would then teach us. And when I made the video called Sarah, the gefilte queen, I did it for my sister who lives in London, who needed to make gefilte fish, her own, not bought off the shelf here, her own. And who do we ask? Sarah, because she made the best gefilte fish, better than my granny, better than my mom. She was the
0: queen. How do those two cultures cross? I imagine there's probably more similarity than dissimilarity, and particularly coming through a difficult post-apartheid history, this transition with food and Jewish community migration, the story that you've told me about, Sarah. Tell me about how that fits today for you. There's a love-hate relationship that Jewish people, particularly younger
1: generations, have with gefilte fish. I think, in truth, what's happened in the Jewish community who embraced the Jewish food is it is extraordinary how it has stayed the same for probably hundreds of years. I mean, we've been around for about 3,000 years, and it just stuns me that we're still here. You know, the same prayers being said that were thousands that are thousands of years old but food-wise probably you know hundreds of years old it is it is a microcosm and it's an interesting debate to see how microcosm maintains and uh, keeps legacy and tradition alive or I always ask them about the food when you grew up what was the food what did your gra- we want to know about the grandparents and the great-grandparents what did they make what did you love and it, often you hear the kefilter fish they love it or they don't love it But in those years, my granny's generation and before, because she was an immigrant, they would take the skin of the fish and they would, as I understand it, pack all the leftovers and bits and pieces of fish in the whole thing, probably a bit of chopped up fish heads or whatever, in that and wrap it in the skin. And the idea is that it would keep. They were poor and it would keep. So gefilte fish was kind of like, not workers' food, but it was kind of really basic food. And then over the years, as immigrants went to different countries, etc., filter fish is the thing that you have to have at the high holidays.
0: The more we chatted, I realized the waste-not-want-not continuity between spirit, land, and sea within an ancestral food lineage is pretty straightforward, no matter the religion, race, nor political backdrop. It begins with the mothers, the grandmothers, the women, keepers of tradition and culture. Both Pavitri and Lisa seem to agree. Absolutely. And I must admit,
2: when I started as a marine biologist, I didn't quite see how the food waste and the cultural significance would fit in it. She was actually sitting down. When you got six or seven women sitting down, cutting a couple of bags of potatoes, and she'd say, what do you think of, you know, this, this political situation we're having? It's really bad that, you know, I can't go and buy certain groceries from this grocery because I'm not allowed to walk down that street. And what I'm learning as a person more and more and more until I accept all of those other parts and it becomes my ecosystem I'm having no impact so hence now my evolution from being a pure scientist into becoming a behavioral scientist
0: But when you think of, okay, and I don't really know the best way to term this, but when you think of people who, again, just have meager resources, those are those, similar to the story that you and I were sharing about the gefilte fish where usually people find the deepest, richest cultural lineage tradition. So for the Jewish people, it's around gefilte fish. They use the waste of other fishes, mm. mullet, pike, other fishes, to actually combine it, pulverize it, put it together with something else, and then it becomes a sacred meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the same that you were saying as with your grandmother. You know, there it was, again, to feed people who had meager resources, doing exceptionally deep sacred work. That's how I shifted
2: my focus to behavior, and I realized that where we want to see real change is in how people behave, in how people perceive the planet like I do. You want to get people to that point where they realize its value. And the sad thing is we've worked in very linear systems. We live in a take, make, and discard. That that's the system. But if you go back If you go back, not even a couple of hundred years into how human beings actually existed on this planet, it was never like that.
0: Ah, there it was. Time to cue the bees. Those other beings who've known over millennia the legacy of the queen is what feeds the brood. Waste not, want not is a sacred principle passed through all species, carried through time, space, DNA, desire and utility.
2: Exactly. And you know, if I can give somebody... One piece of advice is self-audit. Everything. And, when, and mostly people, when, when I say self-audit, they think, oh, God, no, man. Now you want me to see how much plastic I use. And, but I'm talking about self-audit across everything. Your thinking, your purchasing behaviour, your eating behaviour, your behaviour to other human beings, your behaviour to other animals, your engagement to the national environment, your engagement in your town. So self-audit. And do it introspectively, write it down, however you want to do it. Every natural system, every natural system, you anything, you can look at how sand is formed, how water is formed, rain, you can look at salt, you can look at trees, you can look at photosynthesis, you can look at carbon, every natural system is circular. Every single thing, everything, that circle of life is literally embedded in everything. The planet is circular, everything we do is circular, and yet our behavior is linear. You think to yourself, when did we disintegrate from that.
0: So what I'm hearing you say then is actually the job for you at WWF in terms of uh, human behavioral change is really looking at integrating humanity, looking from a human centric perspective, not toward we are first, we are most important, but in terms of guiding that transformative change within natural systems absolutely so that we are actually able to accept ourselves as more of the whole i always use the example of
2: we think the planet is a spaceship and we are the pilots (laughs) we are in the spaceship we are one nobody's a pilot here the planet is the pilot it is moving it'll keep spinning i always say this to little kids and i say the planet will survive without us we won't survive without the planet can take human beings off the planet, the planet will still go on. You can't take the planet away from us. We need it. We are so integrated into these systems.
0: So wait, I almost forgot. What's all this got to do with these bees buzzing around us?
2: It's an integration. It's a, a relationship. It's a mutualistic relationship we have with the sun. It gives us something. You know, besides our food and that just as physical beings... We have certain integrations with the system. Why have we taken ourselves out of it? Because all we've done is do ourselves and this planet a horrible disservice. Every woman always has this feeling of sense of responsibility for my community, for my people, for my family, for something that's bigger than me. We also have a better understanding of systems because we think in systems. The other thing is that I think women cognitively believe, know what, how important lineage is. We take lessons. We take lessons, no matter how much you think you're self-taught. Uh-uh. I have very strong beliefs in that. You will always take lessons, no matter what your relationship was with a grand or a grandfather or a grandmother or a mother. No matter what your lineage was, you take lessons from them.
0: And the bees?
2: And my grandmother used to love them. And then she showed me something. She showed me how to brush your teeth with honey. So you take honey, you take coconut. Now you must remember, coconut oil is a big thing for Indians. We use it, we cook it, we put it on our hair, hence the black hair. From the age of three months, you put coconut oil on your hair, all the way till a year as a child. Coconut oil, honey, uh, peppermint, and um, you mix it up and use it as toothpaste.
0: I love that. Perfect antidote to a fish curry. There you go.
2: <laughs> and it's the only thing that takes away real garlic smell. You see. <laughs> Thank you for that. It's a pleasure.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Prosperity Food Company, makers of Trust Rusks and Be Grateful Ice Teas, along with other fantastic indigenously African snacks, with sound design by Melanie Robertson at Origin Audio. Thanks for listening. I'm Yolanda Busby.